Good morning to everyone. We have been away from the book of James for a couple of Sundays, but today we are going to return, so I invite you to take God's Word and find the book of James, chapter 1, and we are going to pick up where we left off uh, several Sundays ago. I, I want to make sure we're ready for what James is going to say in the particular text under consideration today. I want to make sure, I want to make certain our hearts are prepared, ready for it. And so let me begin by asking you a very important question. Would you like to be saved? Would you like to be saved? Now, I know what you're thinking if you're a Christian. You are thinking to yourself, hang on a second, Stephen. Uh, I'm a Christian. That means I'm already saved. So why are you asking me, would you like to be saved? Notice a couple of things in James chapter 1. Notice firstly in verse 2, how James describes these people to whom he is writing. Count it all joy, my brothers. Skip down to verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. It is a word he is going to use seven more times in the remainder of this epistle. Nine times in total. It shows us that he is writing to whom? Those whom he considers to be brothers. That is, brothers in the Lord, Christians. Now, the second thing I want you to notice in chapter 1 is in verse 21. James says the following, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Hold on a second. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to those who are already, by definition, saved. And so why in this verse does he now command them to put away all filthiness, rampant wickedness, and receive meekly the implanted word which is able to save them? Well, if they're already saved, why do they need to be saved? And so it goes all the way back to the question I want us to ponder before we get into the text. It is this, would you like to be saved? I'm speaking to Christians. I'm obviously not referring to salvation from the penalty of sin. If you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, we look back on our lives. And I can state before you, and you as a fellow believer can state publicly as well, we believe that the Lord Jesus is the Son of God. Second person of the triune God incarnate, Jesus Christ. We believe, we confess it, that he lived a, an obedient life while he was here on earth. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled his Father's will. We confess that we believe that the Lord Jesus went to Calvary's cross, and there he died as a penal 
substitutionary sacrifice. A sacrifice for us as our substitute. A penal substitutionary sacrifice, meaning he bore the penalty for our sin. And as he hung upon Calvary's cross, we believe that the Lord Jesus underwent hell itself. We believe that he rose from the dead for our justification. And now we have come before God into the very presence of God, and we have come pleading his mercy on the basis of that perfect life which the Lord Jesus lived and that penal substitutionary death which the Lord Jesus offered on our behalf. And we come and we cry, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. And he saves us from the penalty of sin. We all confess that. It's not my question. My question is this. Would you like to be saved? James is obviously referring to something else. What's he talking about? Simply this. Even though as Christians, God has saved us definitively, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Although he has saved us definitively from the penalty of sin, we are yet to be saved from the power of sin. We are yet to be saved from the presence of sin that awaits the consummation, our glorification. And right now, currently, presently, in this life, today, God is saving us from our sin, the power of sin. So let me reword the question in slightly different words. Would you like to be saved? Hear it as follows. Would you like to grow spiritually? Would you like to increase in wisdom? Would you like to mortify sin? Kill it. Overcome it. Would you like to abound in joy and peace and comfort? Would you like to persevere through hardship? And on top of all of these, would you like to be like Christ? In other words, would you like God to save you? I trust your answer to that question is a resounding yes. I am under no illusion that in all likelihood, however, in this room, right now, at this very moment, there are a fair number, perhaps even a significant number of Christians those who have been saved from the penalty of sin, but who would not describe their lives in terms of salvation from the power of sin. If I was to ask you to describe your life right now, your walk in the presence of the Lord, that's not the language you would use. As a matter of fact, you feel very defeated. As a matter of fact, you feel like you are under it and you're barely, barely treading water, barely keeping your, your nose above the surface of the water. And it's entirely possible, entirely possible, it is definitely possible because it happens all the time that you might approach me, perhaps even I might approach you. And what I will share with you or you will share with me is something with this kind of emphasis, something of this kind of nature, this sort of nature. I'm not growing. I don't feel like I'm growing. 
I don't feel like I'm Christ-like. I'm certainly not mortifying sin. Uh, growing spiritually, increasing in the knowledge of God, increasing at wisdom, perhaps at one time. But as I take stock now, the past week, the past month, the past year, dare I say even longer, I would not describe myself as one who is being saved. Would you like to be saved? Well, hear what James has to say for us, beginning in chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, Slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now we began our reading back in verse 17. We covered it some weeks ago. All James is doing in the 17th verse is reminding us, declaring for us that God is the author. He is the source, the origin, the fountain of all good. There is no good that does not derive originally from God himself material good, and spiritual good. In the 18th verse, he gives us a tremendous, powerful example of God's goodness, of his own will, that is of God's own will, according to his sovereign purposes. Remember, he's writing to Christians. This God brought us forth. He gave birth to us. He regenerated us. He caused us to be born again of his own will. And he did this by the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What a remarkable gift. We were dead. It is as horrible as a physical corpse. That was our condition spiritually. We were dead. Dead in our sin. J.I. Packer comments, sin, oh sin, it is a blind, anti-God, egocentric energy in the fallen human spiritual system, ever fomenting self-centered and self-deceiving desires, ambitions, purposes, plans, attitudes, and behaviors. I know, it's horrendous. The mask is off. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, completely alienated from God, without any inkling of any spiritual life. But God, by his own will, brought us forth. Just as he spoke the old creation into existence by his word, he speaks the new creation 
into existence by his word. Let there be light. And there was light. If you're a Christian, that's what happened to you. God declared, let there be light. And light is life. And by the word of truth, the scales from our blind eyes fell off. And we saw the scriptures for what they really are, the voice of God. And in them we beheld the glory of Christ. And through them we began to understand who we really are and who Christ truly is. Finally, it made sense exactly what transpired at Calvary's cross. And we understood that God commands us. Our rightful king commands everyone, all places, all times, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of their sin. It was a miracle. And James' point is this, it is a gift. It wasn't by our will. It wasn't according to our flesh. It wasn't because we were particularly clever. It's not because we were nice. It's not because we're special. It's not because we differ in any way from anyone else. The only thing that distinguished me, a dead spiritual being, from anyone else, unbeliever, walking the face of the earth right now, is found in that first phrase, in the opening of verse 18, of God's own will. It's a gift. You're a Christian. You do not possess anything that is not a gift. Absolutely nothing. It all descends from the Father of lights, it all comes down from above the Father of lights in whom there is no variation nor shifting shadow. And how does God give this great gift to us? What is the means by which he brings it about? James tells us, verse 18, he brought us forth by the word of truth. There's only one way he does it. There's only one way he causes People dead in their trespasses and sins to come to life, spiritual life. It is through the word of truth. That being the case, what should I think of the word of truth? If that's how God birthed me, what makes me think I can now live without it? If that's how God regenerated me, how could I possibly grow without it? If that is the means by which God brought me forth, then how do I think, under heaven please, I can possibly be saved from the power of sin in my life without it? I can't. That's why James goes on in verse 21, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Because you see, not only is the Bible the means of our regeneration, it is now the means of our salvation. Not only is the Bible the means of our birth, the Bible is the means of our growth. Hear this phrase, please. God does nothing, absolutely nothing in his people except by the word of truth. Everything he performs, everything he does, everything he brings about Everything he accomplishes, he does through this book, the scriptures. How should we respond to that? James tells us, as he moves into verse 19, all the way through to verse 22, 
and he gives us six commands, a six-fold response. So go back to where we began. My question for you this morning, would you like to be saved? All right, right now, friend, Christian, don't know how long you've been a believer, week, month, year, 50 years, whatever. Would you like to be saved? Do you want to grow? I mean, really grow, become mature spiritually, uh, peace and, and comfort and increase in faith and, and, and love and all of these graces? Do you want to, to mortify, put to death sin daily in your life? And, and you know, as you kind of think back on recent history, that's just not where you're at. Well, I encourage you this morning to listen carefully, attentively to these six commands. Here we go. How we should respond to this great realization that the word of truth is the means by which God births us and grows us. Here's his first command. And here would be my counsel to you. If you were to come to me tomorrow and say, yes, Stephen, that's where I am. I want to grow. Uh, help me. Here's what I'd say to you. So no need to come to me tomorrow. Here's what I'd say to you. All right? Well, you can still come. Welcome. Then we can chat a little bit. But all I'll say, hit, do is hit replay. All right? Now you know. Here's number one. Be quick to hear. Verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Now he's speaking of the word of truth. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear. What, you're, what we're doing right now. Be quick to hear. Be quick to listen. To pay attention. Why? I can give you a couple of obvious reasons. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And so do we understand, do we, I stand, I stand in a tradition, I hope I've conveyed this to you over the past eight years. I stand in a tradition that goes back to Calvin. It actually predates Calvin, but it was Calvin who coined the phrase, the sacramental word. And so he viewed the preaching of the word as a sacrament. He actually viewed the preaching of the word as a means of grace in which Christ is present. And so Christ is present whenever his word is proclaimed. That means if I absentee myself from the preaching of the word, what am I doing? I'm actually separating myself from Christ. I'm not sure we ever make, connect the dots there. We think Sunday morning is just one option on a list of things we might do. No, 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 my friend. It is the difference between life and death because of the sacramental word. Christ speaks through the word. Therefore, we should be what? Very quick to hear. Not only that, it is the Word of God that bridges the expanse between heaven and earth, infinite and finite, creator and creature. We listen to this book as if God right now were speaking to us audibly from heaven. As if we could hear Him right now. That is how we approach this book, the Word of Truth. And so we're quick to hear. We listen humbly, intently, eagerly, expectantly, and reverently. It drives us here at Grace Community Church. I've mentioned it a couple times over the past year, I do believe, maybe more than a couple times, and it bears worth repeating. Um, I'm not always sure all of us understand why we're here right now. Why am I here? And I'm not fully convinced all of us really get what we're doing. Why, why do we do this? We have a liturgy. I've explained this a couple of times recently, and I, and I want us to really get it. We have a liturgy at Grace Community Church, and we firmly believe it's based on Scripture. And the liturgy is very simple. We are determined that God speak to us on a Sunday morning. And so we begin, and there is what? A call to worship. And what is it? It's not Chris saying, hey, let's gather and worship. 
is Chris reading Scripture. And it is God commanding his people. It is our king commanding us to come and worship. And then we sing. And as Chris puts those songs together, I, I, I maybe help once every three or four months. But as we put the songs together, the, the question isn't, well, what's going to give people a warm, fuzzy feeling? Never enters our thoughts or imagination. The question is this, what songs actually communicate biblical truth to people? And then once we've done a little singing, what does Christ do? What does Chris do? He prays. He prays for the preaching of the word. And then I stand up here or someone else stands up here and we proclaim and we open the word of God. And then when I'm finished, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the Lord's blessing upon that word. And then I'm going to conclude the whole thing with a benediction, which is God speaking and then sending us forth. This is our liturgy. And the liturgy is intentional because the liturgy is designed to function at a subconscious level whereby we gather Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and God himself is realigning us. We go through our business during the week, try to live a God-centered life. Uh, the alignment gets a little off. Back we come on a Sunday morning to hear from God. We think worship is so vertical. It is true. It's true that it's vertical, but it, you know, it does include that element of praise going up. Far more importantly, worship comes down. It is God speaking to us to transform us that we might worship him during the week in our lives and be transformed through the word of God. And so we have this liturgy and, and, and is designed to work at this subconscious level that it has this realigning effect in us. You know, you think of that young driver or perhaps not yet driver, you got the 16 year old in the household, right? And he, she decides, mom, dad, it's time for me to learn how to drive. You been there? I was there once. It was all right. And so you got your 16-year-old, and you, you pile him, him in the car, and I'll go to the parking lot at Grace Community Church. It's a Tuesday. The only car in the parking lot is Chris's. It won't matter if we hit it, because no one will notice, be able to tell the difference. And so we'll get, in, we'll get into the parking lot, and we, we stop, and, and you get out of the car. You go around the other side, and your 16-year-old comes around this side. Click. You're in. You're ready. You're gripped. Turn it on, son, daughter. On it goes. Well, it's like the, the, the 16-year-old just loses it completely loses it, watching everything, thinking on everything. How does the horn work? Touching the brake, touching the accelerator, touching the brake, touching the accelerator, just thinking, thinking, thinking. Uh, windshield wipers, fluid, high beam signals gets them all mixed up. Adjusting the mirrors, this mirror, that mirror, looking here, looking there, overthinking, overanalyzing, overthinking, overanalyzing. You've been there, right? I've been driving 32 years on a... Tuesday, Wednesday afternoon, I walk out of the office, I get in my car, I drive home. There are times I pull into the parking, into the driveway at home, turn off the ignition, and I just pause and I ask, how did I get here? Boy, I hope I didn't run any red lights. Well, there is only one you could run, right? But how did I get here? What's happened? It has become a habit. The skills required to drive have been repeated so often that they have seeped into our subconscious. That's what we're trying to do on a Sunday morning. You dare not miss it, folks, because that is what God is trying to do. He's discipling you on a Sunday morning. And the liturgy, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, it is a formative habit. And it is designed to train our love for Christ 
at a subconscious level. And so James' command to you is what? If you want to grow, you want to be saved, be quick to hear. The second commandment is this, be slow to speak. Still in the 19th verse. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. Would you like to be saved? Second step, slow to speak. It doesn't mean speak slowly. It means speak less frequently. That's the gist of the command. Einstein, pretty smart fella from all accounts. Was it the theory of relativity, right? Einstein put out what is known as the theory of success. Are you familiar with this? Einstein, this is true. Einstein's theory of success. If A is success in life, then A equals X plus Y plus Z. X is work. Y is play. And Z is keeping your mouth shut. That was Einstein. There's some truth there, isn't there? Be slow to speak when it comes to the word of truth. I think it implies a couple of things. It implies, firstly, that we weigh what we hear. We think we're entitled to have an opinion on everything, even things we do not understand. We're all like that. Let's just face it. It's the elephant in the room. We all think we're entitled to have an opinion, even on things we can't even really explain. Oh, no, we need to weigh things. Make sure we actually understand the word of truth. It implies, secondly, that we weigh what we say, making sure that our speech is seasoned with salt. Weighing what we hear, weighing what we say, you can put them all under the same act. It is simply this, what the old theologians used to call Serious deliberation, serious deliberation, pondering, meditating, mulling over, and seeking to understand things, seeking to understand the Word of God, and just being slow to speak, slow to arrive at conclusions, slow to think we understand when we don't, slow to give our, giving our opinion, and being deliberate in thought. The third commandment is this, be slow to anger. Right at the end of verse 19, slow to anger. He expands on it in the 20th verse, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. And so would you like to be saved? Commandment number one, be quick to hear. Commandment number two, be slow to speak. And commandment number three, be slow to anger. Why slow to anger? I think simply for the following reason. Uh, we resent being told that our way of thinking is wrong. I do anyway. We resent being told that our way of thinking is wrong. And we certainly resent being told that our way of behaving is wrong. And when we resent something, our impulse is what? It is to get angry. I will state it publicly right now. If you are an angry Christian, you are not a growing Christian. It's impossible. It is impossible. We must be slow to anger. Why do I say that? Let me give you three reasons. Angry people are full of mistakes because anger clouds the judgment. You ever tried reasoning with someone who's lost it, gone ballistic? Good luck with that. 
They're not listening, right? Because anger has taken over and judgment has been completely clouded, thrown out of whack. Secondly, angry people can't listen. They simply rearrange their prejudices. Write that down, please. Angry people cannot listen. They simply rearrange their prejudices. In other words, you're addressing something, off they'll go on a rabbit trail, or they'll go over here, but if, but, you know, they'll bring in this, they'll bring in that, they'll bring in this, well, what about that, what about that? They never want to deal with the issue. Anger has taken over, resentment has taken over, bitterness has taken over, harshness has taken over, and they can't follow one argument through to its logical end. They want to go off on all these trails. Why? Because they desperately want to avoid the issue. Anger. Angry people cannot listen. They simply rearrange their prejudices. And the text tells us, verse 20, angry people displease God. Anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. The anger of man does not lead to what pleases God. We often confuse anger with zeal. Someone who's really angry, oh boy, they're zealous. Not necessarily so. It may simply be the anger of man, and more often than not, it is the anger of man, and we dare not justify our anger by that word zeal, thinking that somehow that legitimizes it, because after all, I'm simply championing the cause of God, when in actual fact, it might simply be pride, it might simply be pride cloaked, right, in something related to God or Scripture or or the Christian faith. So angry people are full of mistakes, angry people can't listen, and angry people displease God. Oh, please, if you would like to be saved then you've got to deal with that anger. Be slow to anger. Fourth command is this, verse 21. Put away, what? All filthiness and rampant wickedness. Put them away. Filthiness, wickedness. Uh, The world in which we find ourselves and the corruption with which we are surrounded. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but um, I'm sure it's probably happened to someone here. You're walking along and maybe there's a a park bench or perhaps there's a a railing or a door and it's been freshly painted and there's the sign, fresh paint, do not touch. But you're just not thinking and inadvertently you sit on the bench or you grab hold of the railing or you push on the door and what do you end up with? Paint, paint. If we're walking too closely with the world, And if we are indulging the filthiness and the wickedness that is so prevalent in the world, we we are deceiving ourselves if we think we can walk away from it without bearing the marks upon our souls, without the wet paint sticking. When that wet paint sticks and that corruption, we've entertained it in our lives, It dampens. The first thing it does is what? It dampens our appetite for things that are spiritual. Meaning what? It curbs our interest in God's Word. You think we have a powerful example of it in Scripture. Uh, The children of Israel, God leads them out of Egypt and in the wilderness. He provides for them. He sustains them by sending manna from above. And this manna that was there every morning, all they had to do was exit their tent, gather it up, and eat it. What do we read in Numbers chapter 14? We discover that the Israelites remembered, they complained to Moses, they murmured. We remember the fish, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. This stinking manna. Why? 
because their hearts were still where? In Egypt. Give me the garlic and leeks and put me back in slavery. Basically what they're saying, put me back in bondage, put me back in, in, in those deplorable conditions as long as I have what satisfies my carnal appetite. And if that's where you're at today, Christian, I beg you to examine your own heart and weigh the rampant filthiness and wickedness in this world and ask yourself, is it entirely possible I have left the door to my heart ajar and corruption has entered in and the reason I find what you're going through right now boring is not because it is boring. It is because you have completely destroyed your appetite for things spiritual, namely the Word of God, because you are walking too closely with the world. Oh, put it away. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. You see, if there, if there, if there is a Christian right here, Grace Community Church, I suppose there is a believer who, taking assessment on his life, her life, says, you know, I haven't really been growing. I haven't been growing at all. Let's face it, past year, I'm not growing. There are only, there, there's only really one of two possible reasons why. It is that simple. There are only two, two variables. First of all, the problem could be the message, the seed. Okay? That's my worst nightmare. That, that, that's where I live weekly and the worry that consumes me as to whether or not the Word of God is being faithfully transmitted to the people of God that they can actually feed upon it. Do you know what my one joy is? That there are people here growing. Well, if there are people here growing, then guess what? There's nothing wrong with the message. Therefore, ergo, this is logic, 101, you're left with only a second possibility. It's not that the seed is bad, the message is bad, but the soil is acidic. The problem is the receptor, the individual receiving. I know this is, this is harsh. This is, this is pastoral theology one-on-one. We believe the Word of God. It's God-breathed, right? Scripture is God-breathed, and it's profitable for rebuking. And it may very well be I'm rebuking one or two right now, and I do so. I pray I do. I'm speaking the truth in love. That if you look back, I'm not growing. I put it to you. I submit it to you for your careful consideration. There's really only one possible reason why. There's only one. There's only one possible reason. It's on the table right now. And James hits the nail on the head right there in verse Verse 21, it's because uh, filthiness and wickedness, a little too much of it going on in your life. That's it. It is that simple. And therefore, your love for spiritual things, your longing for the pure milk of the Word has been severely distorted by what is going on in your life. And the call, therefore, is what? It's to repent. And the call is to remember what? God is merciful. God will forgive us for that. We've all been there. I've been there. And it's for us to acknowledge, though, the problem and to own up to it and to bring it before the Lord. This is where I've been. This is what I've been doing. I'm forsaking this. I'm turning to you. Oh, and God help me and be gracious to me, a sinner. There's the fourth step. There's the fourth command. Put away filthiness and wickedness. Peter, he mentions the same thing. His first epistle, chapter 2, verse 1. Put away all malice. Is malice in the way? There's somebody you really don't like. Put away all deceit. Put away all hypocrisy. Your external really doesn't match what's going on in your heart. Put away all envy. Is there someone, you know, you think about that person and um, they are something or they have something you wish 
you could be or have. Slander. Are you slanderous towards others? Put it all away. Put it away. Put it away. Put it away. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation. Oh, I pray that was clear. Right? The equation, the mathematical equation there. Problem, I'm not growing. Problem, two potential reasons. The message or the receptor. The seed or the soil. I submit to you, I'm not saying this out of, out of, out of pride. I'm saying this out of, out of thankful rejoicing that there are lots of people here growing at Grace Community Church. Therefore, the problem cannot be the seed, the message. Therefore, the problem must be the soil. The soil isn't good. Soil is acidic. There is something in the soil that is killing the message. And my friend, you need to get serious before God and approach him through the Lord Jesus Christ and acknowledge exactly what it is and deal with it definitively once and for all, or you will continue to languish there, just spinning your wheels in the muck and the mire. There you'll be. Oh, no, move on. Would you like to be saved? Then hear that commandment from the Lord. The fifth commandment is this, that we are, as we move into verse 23, uh, 22, uh, 21, sorry, therefore put away all filthiness, rampant wickedness, and here it is, receive the fifth commandment, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Notice three things quickly. What we receive, the implanted word. You want a helpful verse to understand that? Jeremiah 15, 16 Jeremiah declares, your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. And so the implanted word is what? It is when we actually understand the word with our minds and our hearts embrace it. That's what we're receiving, the implanted word. How do we receive it? We receive it with meekness. What does it mean to be meek? Very simple. It's to possess a teachable mind and a submissive heart. You want some questions? Do I want some questions to determine whether or not I have a teachable mind and submissive heart? Whether you want it or not, or I want it or not, here they are. Are we prepared to submit ourselves to something we don't like when we hear God's word? Are we actually prepared to submit ourselves to something we don't like? Are we prepared to be corrected? Are we ready to confess our sin? Are we ready to change our way? Are we prepared to submit ourselves to something we don't necessarily understand? After all, my finite mind is not the final judge when it comes to biblical truth. Are we prepared to be instructed? Are we prepared to confess our ignorance? Are we prepared to change our mind? We receive the word of truth with meekness. Third point I want you to get in this verse, why we receive it, brings us right back to the start. It is able to save our souls. Would we like to be saved? Do we want to grow spiritually? Do we want to increase in maturity? Do we want to mortify malice and anger and bitterness and a host of sins? Oh, do we want to be more like the Lord Jesus? Do we want to walk by the Spirit and not the flesh? Do we want to be filled with the Spirit of God? Do we want the fruit of the Spirit to abound in us? Oh, it is only the word of truth that is able to save us as it cleanses us, matures us, and transforms us. An old man, by one account, visited his pastor. He was frustrated. At how often he forgot the pastor's sermons. 
And how often he forgot verses he had memorized. He said, Pastor, I try to remember what you teach in your sermons. And I try to remember Bible verses. But I listen and forget. I memorize and I forget. Listen to this. I feel like a cup filled with holes that's constantly dipped into a bucket of water. But by the time the cup reaches my lips, the water is spilled out of the holes. The pastor wisely replied, fair enough, but just think about how clean the cup is. Do you understand why you are here? There is something going on at a subconscious level that as we submit ourselves to God's liturgy, His worship, the Spirit of God works through the word of truth. And yes, take notes. It's wonderful. I thank God that many of you do. Yes, reflect on those notes during the week. Yes, get together to discuss those notes. That's great. And seek to apply them. All of that is absolutely necessary. But it is the actual habit, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, dipping this cup full of holes into the water. And at times, by the time you get it to your mouth, there's nothing left. But understand that the cup is unbelievably clean because the Spirit of God is working at a subconscious level whereby the Word of Truth is cleansing us and forming, therefore, our very thoughts, our desires, our ambitions, our dreams. There's one final command. Would you like to be saved? The sixth, verse 22, here it is. Be a doer of the Word. 22nd verse, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We're breaking the thought there. The thought James introduces with that phrase, deceiving yourselves, and the difference he has posited between a doer of the word and a hearer of the word, he is going to continue and develop right through to the end of the chapter. And we're going we're gonna to look at that. We're going to take it in a couple of chunks the next couple of Sundays. But we're ending it here with this sixth command, be doers of the word. And not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Some people listen to God's word so that they can argue about what they hear. Good luck with that. Some people listen to God's word so that they can boast about what they hear. Some people listen to God's word hoping to be entertained. Some people listen to God's word hoping to satisfy their curiosity. Some people listen to God's word hoping to appease their conscience. The only acceptable motive in God's sight for listening to his word is a desire to actually do it. A longing to obey. What saith the Lord? And what does God's word require of me? Do I appreciate, do you appreciate fully the difference between a hearer and a doer? A hearer, a mere hearer versus an effectual doer of God's Word. Far too often, regrettably, there is a significant gap between what we confess and what we actually do. Uh, we can't be saved if that's the case. We can't grow spiritually if that's the reality with which we live. You know, some of us can articulate the sovereignty of God that we're still imprisoned by worry. Well, that's being a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word. 
Some of us can expound on the glory of God, yet we still struggle with pride. How do you explain that? Especially when you think back on regeneration, a gift, and everything we have is a gift. It's a gift, 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 gift. So why do we still stroke our pride? Some of us can unravel the doctrine of sanctification, yet we still indulge lust. Some can engage in ministry, really busy, fervent, yet still fail to love his wife and kids. And explain the doctrine of justification, yet at times still act as though God is keeping score. That's the difference between being a doer and a hearer of the word. We can proclaim God's forgiveness as beautiful, as wonderful, praise God, yet still harbor bitterness and resentment. If that's you right now, I hope you understand you are a mere hearer of the word. You are not a doer of the word. Therefore, the word is not saving you presently. You are not growing. And there's a need to deal with that sin. We can proclaim God's forgiveness, yes, and harbor bitterness and resentment. We can talk about future glory. Oh, it will be glory, yet still live for our personal ease and comfort. We can defend the gospel, get all excited and frothy at the mouth, yet still fail to live it out before others. Hearer of the word, doer of the word. We can celebrate God's sovereign grace, and yet still treat others harshly and dismissively, running all over them. That's James' point. Uh, No, we are to receive the word of truth with meekness, the word implanted which is able to save our souls. But understand this, I'm not being saved right now. I am not growing. If I am, according to verse 22, a mere hearer as opposed to an effectual doer, I wish James, I wish in my carnal part, James did not add that phrase, but he does. There it is. You see, a person who is a mere hearer and not a doer is actually suffering from a most terrible ailment, which is what? It's there, folks. I'm not making this up. It's there. It's in the text. It's the Word of God. It may be God's voice to some of you this morning. That individual is deceiving himself. And he's going to go on from verse 23 right through to the end of the chapter to unpack what it means to suffer from self-delusion, self-deception. Right back to where we began. Would you like to be saved? Yes? Then hear again the word of the Lord. Verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person, here's number one, be quick to hear. Here's number two, be slow to speak. Here's number three, be slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Here's number four, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Here's number five, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And here's number six, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Our Father. These are tough, tough words. And as we examine ourselves, we undoubtedly see how we fail in many ways. And we are indeed thankful that we can run to the foot of the cross. 
and we can behold your Son, the Lord Jesus, the perfect, spotless, unblemished Lamb of God, who died on behalf of rebels and sinners, that we might be reconciled to you. We thank you for this. This is the foundation upon which we stand. This is the unshakable rock in the midst of the storm. Yet we do acknowledge our Father that you have saved us to transform us. And so we pray that we might evaluate ourselves humbly, sincerely, wisely, and correctly, that you would save us from despair, that as we take stock and perhaps see failures and shortcomings, then rather than reveling in that, that we might run to Calvary's cross, confess it, come before you, a merciful God, and seek your help and guidance in dealing with these things. For unbelievers in our midst, we pray for their salvation, that you might point them to the cross this day. And for your children gathered here right now, again, we ask that we would see ourselves as we really are. And even more importantly, that we would see Christ as he truly is. And with this, we would be enamored and encouraged this day. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.